0: Well, good morning. It's good to be here at Cross Creek. Uh, As Chris already said, I am the RUF campus minister at Birmingham Southern College. And yes, this is our 10th year there. Uh, I just want to start off by saying thank you to Cross Creek. You uh, support us and have for many years. And so in a sense, I am your college pastor at Birmingham Southern. So you allow me to do what I love, which is go And pastor 18 to 22 year olds. Uh, And it's never a dull moment. And so uh, thank you. It's good to be with you. If you want to know more about what RUF is or what it looks like at Birmingham Southern, come uh, come talk to me afterwards. But the best way I could show you what I do is is preach. Because one of the greatest privileges I have is to stand up uh, once a week in the chapel at Birmingham Southern and open up the Bible. And try to make sense of it to uh, college students uh, that often don't understand it. So it's good to be with you. Uh, I also have a wife, Kristen, and two children. They're not here this morning, uh, but uh, we feel very loved and encouraged by this church. So thank you. Now, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter five. And as you turn there, uh, I have two children. Thomas is three and Lila is two. And one of the things that's been interesting to me, as I've noticed my own parenting, is that I tend to view parenting my children in these really big concepts. I tend to look at them and I, I tend to think, okay, I want them to be respectful of people. I want them to grow up and love God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength. I want them to have integrity. I I look at my kids and I just I want these huge things for them. And what I often forget is that they need me to help them to tie their shoes. They need me to help them learn how to hold a spoon so they can eat yogurt. Just the nitty gritty everyday practical things of life. And here I am thinking, I just want them to grow up and get married and just do these big things. And I think that is very similar to the way you and I think about the Christian life. We think about it in these terms of, I want to love God with all my heart. Well, what does that mean? I want to be missional in the way that I live in my community. Well, what does that mean? Or even just within this Sermon on the Mount, uh, I'm supposed to be pure in heart. I'm supposed to be merciful. Those are just really big concepts. And what we forget is that the life that Jesus wants for us often is lived in the nitty gritty, small, everyday, mundane, practical things of life. And that is something that this text, this passage is going to help us with, because in this passage... Starting with our passage for this morning and then going forward, Jesus actually gives us six practical nitty gritty down to the basics ways in which it looks like to follow him. Uh, Okay, you're supposed to be merciful. Well, what does it look like to be merciful when your spouse makes you really frustrated and upset? You're supposed to be pure in heart. Well, what does it look like to be pure in heart? You're supposed to be a peacemaker. okay? what does it look like to be a peacemaker when my friends at school make me mad? Or when someone cuts me off on the highway. Six practical examples of what it means to follow Jesus. And we're just going to look at one of them this morning. One of the ways in which Jesus fills out the true meaning of God's laws in the Old Testament. So uh, I invite you to stand with me as I read Matthew chapter five. And I'm going to read verses 21 through 26. You have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out. Until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, we believe that your word is true. We believe that your word is living as you are and active. And we come to the part of the service that for some of us is the most dreadful. To sit and listen to someone talk. And so I ask God that you would be the one that would speak. I ask that your word would open our eyes and open our hearts. To what you would like to say to us, speak to us this morning, living God, I pray in Jesus name. Amen. You can have a seat. So you're going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which... If you're new, uh, is Jesus's longest and most famous sermon in the Bible. And you started with the Beatitudes, which is what the most people are familiar with in the Sermon on the Mount. And you noticed as you went through the Beatitudes that Jesus says over and over again, blessed are blessed are. Blessed are. And so in a sense, the Beatitudes could be said that this is the blessed life. This is the good life. This is what Jesus intends for your life to look like. But I love the order because as soon as he says this is what your life should look like, he reminds us that you are not blessed for your own good, but you're blessed in order to be a blessing to those around you. And so he goes into what it means to be salt And light in the world. We are to be outward facing in our communities, in our homes, in our cities, etc. And then in the next passage, Jesus says this curious line that you have already studied. I did not come to abolish the Old Testament laws, but to fulfill them. There was confusion about how to treat the Old Testament laws in Jesus' day, and Jesus gives us some examples of what it means that he fulfills the Old Testament laws of God. And the ways, and the way that he does it is he uses this phrase. You have heard it said, fill in the blank, but I say, fill in the blank. And he does it six times in Matthew five. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I say Anyone who is angry with their brother or sister is guilty of murder. And we have heard that before, and so it just sounds like a nifty statement that Jesus is using, right? But it is always good when you read the Bible to imagine what it would have been like to be there and hear it for the first time. So if you can, put yourself into the shoes of a first century. Jewish audience and hear Jesus say, you have heard it said, do not murder. And what you would say is, yes, Jesus, I have heard that. In fact, I have it memorized. I've heard it my whole life. It's called the Old Testament law of God, and I know it backwards and forwards. And imagine someone coming to you and saying, You've heard it said, but I say something different that just has to land on us before we look at this text to imagine what it would be like for someone to walk up and say, I know you've heard it said this, but I say this and I want you to trust me. So that's what Jesus is doing. And so for a few minutes, let's look at this text and see what Jesus means. And God never wants his word to be big concepts only. He never wants it to remain for someone else. And so I just ask that for the next few minutes that you would be open to God speaking to you and to your heart. So verse 21, Jesus says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you. That anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. What is Jesus doing? In a sense, Jesus is filling out the original Old Testament command, the sixth commandment of ten, do not murder. If you go back to verse 17, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish or to destroy the Old Testament laws. But I have come to fulfill them. Well, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament laws? There's two ways he does it. And one is the, the way that we normally think of, which is that he does them all for us. He obeys them perfectly. But there's another way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. And in a way, I would like to think of it as he fills them out. He amplifies. He adds meaning to the Old Testament laws, and that is what he's doing in our passage. So let's look at how Jesus amplifies or fills out this command. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, if you are angry with your brother, you will be subject to judgment. As long as the law says to you and me, don't murder, then all we have to do is make sure that we don't kill anyone. And then we've obeyed it. Check. No murders. That's all we have to do. We just have to make sure that we set up our lives and we put safeguards in place so that we are very careful so that we don't kill anyone. But Jesus is something saying something profound. He is saying to you and me this morning, I'm not just concerned with your actions. I am also concerned with your heart. I am not just after your behavior. I am after your heart. People in Jesus's day called the Pharisees were experts at putting fences in their lives so that they would make sure that they didn't break any of God's commands. Whatever I do, just make sure that I don't kill anyone. So I'm going to put all these fences around me to make sure I don't kill anyone. And we do it in the southern United States because the law says to be kind. And so whenever I'm around another person, I'm going to put fences up to make sure that at least I don't break the, the law to be nice. And so I'm going to be sweet. I'm going to smile. I'm going to pat them on the arm And I'm going to say endearing things because I'm just going to make sure that I don't break the law. Be nice. It's just a fence. And what what is sad about that is that when we put fences around us to make sure we don't break the law, what we don't realize is that we bring our heart inside the fence. And what Jesus is after is inside the fence. It's our heart. And Jesus doesn't want to just change your behavior. He wants to change your heart. If it just was simply don't kill anyone, then I would imagine that everyone in here is fine. And everyone in here can say they're okay. But if Jesus amplifies this, if Jesus tightens it, if Jesus fills this out and says, Oh, no, 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 no. If you're just angry at someone in your heart, you are guilty of breaking the intent of the command. Then he has just leveled the playing field. So, the first thing Jesus wants to say, I believe, to you and me this morning is I am not just concerned with your behavior. I want your heart. But let's keep going. Jesus says in this text, if I you've heard it said don't murder, but I say anyone who's angry with their brother will be subject to judgment. And there are two different words for anger in the Bible. And it's important for us to know that because one use of the word anger is a sudden flare up. And the other use of the word anger, which is actually the word that's used here. Is a slow, methodical buildup of resentment and bitterness that we carry around with us. Because Paul in Ephesians four actually says, many of you know this text in your anger, do not sin or be angry, but do not sin. So the question then has to be, does the Bible allow For any anger. And I would suggest to you that the answer, if we follow the example of Jesus. And Paul and this text is, is that, yes. There actually are things in this world that you and I should be angry about. When we look at what's happening in the world around us and when we look at what's happening in our city. And even in our communities. There are things that should make us angry. And maybe some of us need to get more angry about some of the things that are happening in the world that are just plain wrong and unjust. There are things in this world that should make us angry. The question, I think, is what are you going to do with that anger when it flares up? Where are you going to go from there? Because it's really easy, I think, for many of us to say, yeah, 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 there's such a thing as good anger. As long as I just don't carry it around for too long. And I would just say, and Jesus probably says in this text, watch out. Watch out for the tendency that you and I have to say, some anger is okay, just not too much anger. One, because we're not Jesus. But two, when was the last time that your anger really was righteous anger? It's really easy to start rationalizing and say that some anger is okay as long as it's righteous anger. And I just want to ask the question is it really righteous anger? What's going on in your heart? The first thing Jesus wants to say to us this morning is I'm not just about your behavior. I'm not just about your actions. I'm about your heart. And I think the second thing that Jesus wants to say is that anger. That remains in our heart. Is not allowed. That the life of obedience to follow Jesus cannot include anger that we carry around with. That leads to bitterness. We cannot hold grudges and we cannot allow resentment to form. We must take whatever anger that is righteous and channel it into something good. So let's keep going. Jesus actually gives us two examples of what comes out of a heart that's angry. If you squeeze a heart that gets angry, this is what's going to come out. Ready? He says, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, that just means idiot or stupid person anyone who says to someone else that person's just an idiot is answerable to the sanhedrin but anyone who says you fool that's essentially the same thing it's it's a little bit more contemptuous it's actually attacking someone's character rather than just something that they did that you think is stupid Anyone who says to his brother, Raka will be answerable to the Sanhedrin judgment. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, what's Jesus doing here? He's basically making sure that he has just covered everyone in the room. He's covered every type of anger because he has said, "Okay, some of you wear your emotions on your sleeve. And you're just a passionate person. And when someone gets in your way, you get angry and you flare up. And whoever's closest to you is going to take the brunt. Some of you, though, have a more mild personality. Maybe you process things internally and you're not going to flare up and get angry at someone, but you're going to walk around with anger and it's going to build and build and build in your heart. Some of you. Get angry easily, but you don't show it necessarily by by calling someone names, but you're going to think it in your heart. And Jesus has just said that all three of those examples of anger are deserving of judgment. Did you see what Jesus just did? He just said all types of anger, regardless of what your temperament is and your personality, any kind of anger like that is subject to judgment, is a hell-deserving offense. Now, I minister on a college campus where that is not a popular statement. And I would assume that some of you in here are uneasy with Jesus. Sunday school Jesus Talking about. Hell. I know that there are some of you in here that are uneasy about that, but you have to let Jesus's words be Jesus's words. And according to Matthew five. Anger, whether it's a flare up or whether it's anger that we hold around in resentment. Is a hell deserving. Offense. You have a quote in the back of your worship guide. That says this, he is a fool who cannot be angry, but he is wise who will not remain so. Or there's another one. Jesus is not only the friend of sinners, but he is also the preacher of judgment. There's a longer quote in your handout that you can read later. Uh, For those of you that have a really hard time wrestling through the fact that you've always heard that God is love. But in this text, God seems to be also a God of judgment. There's, a, there's an excellent quote in your handout for that. But what Jesus is saying in Matthew five is, is that there is serious judgment. For those of us that flare up in anger or hold resentment in our hearts in any way or use your words to tear down others. And we have to ask the question, why? Why is Jesus so serious about this. And I think one of the reasons why is this, if you, if you look back at the sixth commandment, do not murder. And you ask, why did God give his people a commandment? Do not murder. What was the intent behind that command? It's the same thing that Jesus is doing here. The, the intent behind it is to say, people have value and people matter to me. And when you hurt them in any way, you are offending me because I have created them in my image. The reason why Jesus cares so much about our anger and cares so much about the words that we use is because Jesus knows that words murder people. Words steal life from people. They they have the ability to give life and they have the ability to take life away that phrase that you learned as a kid, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is so wrong. And you know it, of course, words will hurt me. Everyone in here has been hurt by words at one point or another in life. And psychology will tell you, and I think it's true. Negative words have much more power to take life away than positive words do to give it. There are studies that have shown that it takes 10 positive or encouraging words to make up for one negative word. And some of you know that that is true. I like to listen to a podcast called This American Life. It's basically a group of people that tell really good stories. And years ago, I heard an episode where they told a story about a guy named Jeffrey Canada who has become pretty well known for what he's doing in New York. But he is he has set up something called the Harlem Children's Zone. And Jeffrey Canada, in a sense, is saying if we can catch children in underprivileged areas early enough and young enough, our success rate for turning their lives around is much higher. And one of the studies that he used to sort of support this theory Is a study that showed the amount of words that a baby hears in a in a home of privilege, a well off, a well to do home, a a home in over the mountain, Birmingham and a home in a uh, in a poor area of the country. And what the study showed is fascinating that on average, a, a child when they turn three. A child in a well-to-do privileged home has heard 20 million more words than a child in an underprivileged home. 20 million more words on average. And that's just words. The study goes on to say that that child in that in that home uh, of privilege has heard on average about 500,000 positive words and about 80,000 negative words. And in a home uh, in poverty, it's the exact opposite. About 80,000 positive words and hundreds of thousands of negative words. Why am I saying all this? Because Jesus knows that words have power and words can hurt people and words steal life. And anger that manifests itself in words that hurt is a serious offense to God. So for those of you that wear your emotions out on your sleeve and it's easy for you to get angry at people and those of you that are more inward and it's harder for you to express that anger, but it builds up inside of you. For those of you that have ever thought That person is stupid or that person is foolish. What has Jesus just done to us? He has just leveled us all. He has not let any of us say, oh, I got that check. He has just done what the entire Sermon on the Mount is designed to do, which is take us back to the very beginning And what is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? What is the first thing that Jesus says? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The entire Sermon on the Mount is designed to focus us back to that start and to say, I'm poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus does close this passage out by giving us two practical examples, and I don't want to study them or look at them in depth, but I think it's interesting that Jesus does give us some steps of obedience on how to seek reconciliation when you've hurt someone or when someone has hurt you with their words. And it's worth noting because I missed this for years when I read the Bible that Jesus says, if you are in a worship service, and you realize that someone else has something against you. You need to go and seek reconciliation. I've always read that wrong. I've always thought that what Jesus is saying is if I if I know I've harmed someone or if I know I've done something wrong, I need to go to them and seek reconciliation And Jesus actually says, if you just know that someone has something against you, you're not the one that has done anything. You just know that someone else has something against you. You go And seek reconciliation. That is how serious Jesus is. And then he just says, if you're on the way to court, if you're on the way to settle the matter, try to settle it while you're walking to the judge. Do it and do it soon. Words matter. So what should our conclusion be? How can we wrap this up? I would say this obedience to Jesus is a lot harder than we thought it would be. That needs to be one of our conclusions. Obedience is a lot harder than we thought it would be. Another conclusion needs to be that Jesus is much more serious about our anger than I thought maybe he was. Obedience to Jesus is a lot harder than we thought. And Jesus is a lot more serious about anger than we thought. And I've broken God's laws a lot more than I thought. That needs to be our conclusion. Obedience to Jesus is much harder. Jesus is much more serious about this than we thought. And I've broken God's commands much more than I thought. But remember what the point is. The point is, is not to make you feel guilty. The point is to make you feel poor in spirit and know that you need a savior. A savior. That's what Jesus is trying to do, because remember earlier, I said there are two ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament laws the way that we just looked at it. He fills them out. He amplifies them. He gives meaning to them. But remember the first way that Jesus fulfills the laws. He obeys them for you. He keeps every one of them. Perfectly for us, and by doing that. He has secured for you and me the smile of the Father. You do realize that, that Jesus has fulfilled the law for you if you're a Christian. If you would say that you are a follower of Christ, Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. And when God looks at you, He is smiling. How many of you, when you heard this passage explained and you realized all the ways in which you've broken it in your anger, thought, I know I believe that God loves me and I know that he's pleased with me, but it kind of feels like he's disappointed with me right now. That is not the way that the Christian is supposed to read scripture. But if we're honest. We kind of have this Wizard of Oz fear that behind God's smiling face is really a disappointed and angry God who is saying to you, why can't you get your act together? Why can't you get your anger under control? I've been waiting for you to get over this and you, you can't seem to do it. I said earlier that my daughter is two. She wakes up early in the morning sometimes. And. I'll go into her room and I'll tell her, hey, it's not time to get up yet. You need to go back to sleep. She's always waiting for me to come in in the mornings. I love being the first one to go in in the mornings because when it is time to to go in, I'll walk in and I'll turn on the light and she'll look at my face. And she's looking to see if I'm smiling, because if I'm smiling, then she knows that it's time to get up. But if I leave the light off, And I and I don't have the the beaming smile on my face, then she knows that it's not time to get up yet. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you don't have to wonder what face you're gonna see when you bow your head in prayer or when you consider what God thinks. You don't have to wonder. God is always pleased with you. And the reason why is because you have someone else's resume. Jesus has filled out a perfect resume and simply cut and paste into your resume and leaves your name at the top. That's the good news of what Christianity is all about. And that's what it means that he has fulfilled the Old Testament law. So when you read this passage and you feel poor in spirit. Let it lead you to know that you have a savior. Let it lead your heart to know that he has done something for you that you could not do yourself. That's what it means to trust in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray. Lord God, we say that we believe. That this is true, but it is so hard to live it out. God, we have just read your word and it has slayed us all. It has leveled us. There is no one in here that is can say we've done it and we can check it off. We are all poor in spirit. And I pray that if there's anyone here. Here that does not know what it means to be in Christ and to have Christ's resume and to have faith and be able to trust that that's true for them, that today would be the day that you would open their eyes to that reality. And for those of us that have trusted in that in the past, but it has become extremely difficult to believe that it's true. Would you open our eyes to that reality? This is good news. May we all believe that it's true.